So I want to invite you to buckle up this morning. I am incredibly excited, both in light of what Pastor Janet shared last week with the excitement of Pentecost, what we just heard with the book of Acts as a whole, and what it means to continue in the rest of the story that God has begun through the empowerment of God's Holy Spirit after the resurrection. So we pick up this morning in Acts chapter 2, verses 32 and 33, and it gives us a great recap of what's been going on to set the stage for the explosive growth of the church. So if you have your Bibles with you, I'm going to invite you to pull them out with me and look with me. We're going to be putting a number of, of, on the screen, but again, invite you in your own Bibles or maybe on your phone. We're going to look first at verse 32, and it shares why there's any story at all. The reason we have any story at all is because God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses together of it. The only reason there can be any story is because of that, because of the resurrection, the account of the defeat of death, and the inbreaking of a brand new reality. This is absolutely crucial. There would be no story if not for this account. But that is not the end of the story. And Acts begins to share with us what the rest of the story is. So if you look in verse 33, we hear Jesus was exalted to the right hand of God. And we talked about that a few weeks ago to experience the truth and the power of the ascension, Jesus rising up into heaven. Because when Jesus rose up into heaven, Jesus went up, the Holy Spirit came down so that God could continue to empower us to be God's church here and now. After that, we are blown away almost literally by the roaring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost with the birth of the church. Verse 33 summarizes it this way, the promised Holy Spirit has poured out what you now see and hear. And again, Pastor Janet did a great job last week helping us understand the importance of Pentecost and unpacking that for us and helping us wrestle with the question, what does this, what is the Holy Spirit, what does Pentecost mean for us? And what's going to happen as we continue to wrestle together? And now we've looked at those things, and now we come this morning, and all of this stuff has been going on. Resurrection, Jesus rising from the dead, Jesus ascending into heaven, the Holy Spirit coming down. And now we continue on this first day of Pentecost, Peter is giving his first sermon. All of this, again, is happening after the resurrection. It's the rest of the story. It's the start of a movement. A new way of life is occurring. There is an inbreaking that God is calling all of God's followers into and sweeping us up into that continues even to today. So those of you, kind of like me maybe, who like fast-paced, heart-pounding action, this account is for you. We can accuse the gospel of many things, one thing, though, we cannot accuse authentic Christianity of is being boring. We might make church boring at times, but authentic Christianity is not. Listen to what it says in verse 41 here this morning. It says very clearly, those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000, 3,000 were added to their number daily. If you stop and think about that, that is absolutely staggering, mind-blowing. It is a historical fact that Christianity had explosive growth. Even today, there's only a tiny fraction of churches after many years who have more than 3,000 members or attenders in their church. And here, at the beginning of Christianity, 3,000 in one day. This explosive growth 
was such a phenomenon that it's actually caused a historical problem regarding Christianity for historians. And here's the problem. When you consider Christianity started with a group of ragtag folks with no resources, no education, they were people of low influence, and they were competing with other religions at the same time, why and how did this group of people, did Christianity impact not just the entire Roman Empire and impact it in a small degree, but overturn it completely? Why did Christianity succeed when all other religions failed? Because Christianity was not a violent religion. It did not advance through conquest. For the first 400 years, nobody really picked up a sword in defense of it. So what's going on? It produced communities unlike the world had ever seen and experienced before. How and why did Christianity do this when no other religion was able to do so? I love some of the points that Tim Keller makes on this. He says, three things that Christians did which set them apart from other religions at the time were this. Number one, Christians died better than anyone else. So when they were persecuted for their faith, when lions would come after them, the Christians literally facing death smiled and sang and hugged each other. They were filled with peace, even in the face of death. Pagans had never seen people face death that well, and it captivated them. Secondly, Christians were more inclusive than other religions at the time. Up to this point, other religions were always divisive. Religion was based on where you lived or based on your culture. So if you lived near the mountains, you worshiped a mountain god. If you lived near the river, you worshipped a river god. If you were a Jew, you worshipped Jewish gods. If you were rich, you you worshipped a certain god. If you were poor, you worshipped a certain god. Usually only the educated were very religious because they had the time and the leisure to think about religion. But then Christianity comes along and it breaks down all these divisions and all these barriers. And suddenly you have young and old, rich and poor, educated and uneducated, various cultures, various classes, all coming together, all under the umbrella of Christianity. The world had never seen something like that. Christianity said everybody, regardless of your class or background, everybody is of equal worth in the eyes of God. And so everybody was brought together. The world had never seen that before. It's one of the reasons for us as we've been working on our vision and continuing to clarify that in this place, you you will see that one of our core distinctives in this place is to be beautifully diverse. Because only when we all come together (laughs) does the world see something different. Only Christianity was united in this way where everybody was included. It took royalty and slaves and brought them side by side. The world had never seen that before. And thirdly, Christians cared better than anyone else. Christianity spread because it cared for all people. It cared for the poor and it cared for other people just like their own, whether they were Christians or not. We've mentioned in the past how Emperor Julian noted that Christians took care of everybody. His observation was that the Jews tended to care for the Jews, and the Romans tended to care for the Romans, and the Greeks tended to care for the Greeks. But those Christians, they cared for everybody. So all of these factors were going on, 
but it still did not explain the problem or the question, what fueled Christians to live this different kind of life? And that question remained a historical dilemma for historians. What was it that had happened in the lives of these Christians to suddenly allow them to stare death in the face? to welcome everybody, to care extravagantly for the world? What would have been the catalyst for living in a way that history had never seen before? And one of the things that has, uh, has puzzled historians for years is why and how Christianity spread so fast, even from its earliest days. In essence, where did it come from? There was a former professor at Yale named Kenneth Scott Lauderettes, and he said this once, the more one examines the various factors which seem to account for the extraordinary victory of Christianity, the more one is driven to search for a cause underlying them all. It's clear that at the very beginning, Christianity, there must have occurred a vast release of energy virtually unequaled in history. Nothing else could explain the surge of the early Christian movement. And then he says this, what caused this release of energy, and here is where he as a historian begins to fudge a little. He says, what caused this release of energy lies outside the realm in which modern historians are supposed to move. In other words, as a historian, he admits a problematic, supernatural explanation to all of this. But as a human being, he also confesses, what can I do? when all the evidence points so clearly to the supernatural. What this evidence points to is what we hear and acts together this morning. Here we discover what caused the release of this energy, and what was it? It was God pouring out this release of energy quite literally in the release of the Holy Spirit. So Pentecost happened, where the Holy Spirit was poured out upon him. And then, as Peter preached, this same Holy Spirit attended the message in such a way that something powerful and significant happened. And those who were gathered in the presence of that Holy Spirit-filled sermon were cut to the heart. And it looked like a release of energy because it was a release of energy. I love this. Because what it's saying is that Peter's sermon, it wasn't like he scored the best sermon of all time that everyone responded to. What it means is that whatever words Peter offered, even if they were dry and boring, God came and lit them up, which is a great relief to someone like me, that God may be able to take my dry, boring words and light them up. It's not my words, it's the power of the Holy Spirit that cuts us to the heart. It says this in John chapter 16, verse 8. It says, when he, that is the Holy Spirit, comes, he will prove to the world that the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. There's an interesting word here used for the word prove in regards to the Holy Spirit. It comes from a Greek word called elenko. And here it means you cross-examine until you see your mistake. That is to convict, to convince to rebuke. It's a really strong word, and it implies the piercing with a blade of truth so that there's a spiritual cutting, if you will. It penetrates the heart so that the text could just as easily say, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict, he will penetrate to the heart, he will cut to the heart so that we finally begin to realize 
That's what's happening here in Acts 2. People are cut to their heart when they hear Peter's words and they realize, they realize that God is alive and moving among them. I've always appreciated this realization in scripture and again, takes off some of the pressure for us preachers because literally I can say, all right, God, it is up to you. I'll offer what I can, I'll offer in spite of me, but it is up to you to change the hearts. All of this then raises some questions for us that I want us to think about this morning, two questions in particular. First of all, what is it that first causes people to be cut to the heart by God's Holy Spirit? And secondly, what are the results of being cut to the heart? So first of all, what causes us to begin with to be cut to the heart spiritually? And there's really two very simple reasons that cause us to be cut to the heart. First, the truth of Christ. Secondly, the death of Christ. Consider the truth of Christ first. Here's one of the first interesting things that happens with people being spiritually cut to the heart, and that is people start to think. Most of the people with Jesus back in that time, they didn't think. They just reacted. For example, Just think of the fact of the last week of the life of Jesus. When he came riding into Jerusalem, people full of emotion shouted, Hosanna, praise you. And less than a week later, they were calling crucify. Why were they doing that? Well, they weren't thinking. They were based on emotion and feeling and how they were feeling in the moment. But look what Peter says here this morning in Acts. He says, people, think, think. Peter doesn't just declare Jesus Christ, he proves Jesus Christ to the people. How? Right off the bat, chapter two, verse 32, says God has raised this Jesus to life, and then look at this, we are all witnesses to it. He says Jesus has been raised from the dead, and we are all witnesses. Peter is not saying, hey everyone, I want you to take a wild leap of faith against any evidence that might be out there, and if you take that wild leap, I'm sure you'll have a wonderful spiritual experience. That's not what he's saying. He is stating a reality. He is proving Jesus. Jesus had been raised from the dead, and Peter says, and we saw it. There are witnesses out there. To put this in the historical context, the hardest group of people to convince of something like this at the time, that Jesus had raised, been raised from the dead, would have been the Jews themselves. The Jews did not believe in any earthly resurrection at all. They actually would have been against this. So when Peter comes and speaks to them, he did not say, hey, three or four of us have witnessed this event. If he'd have said that, nobody would have been cut to the heart. They would have said, sure, sure, a couple of you saw it. But Peter says, wait, no, look, all of us have been witnesses, implying many, implying what I'm telling you cannot be disputed. In 1 Corinthians, we hear that Jesus appeared to scores of people, multiple times, multiple groups. That means there were hundreds of people around Jerusalem who had seen Jesus, so it's making it a matter of public record. Nobody can stand against it. They are witnesses. Later on in the book of Acts, actually at the very end of the Acts, in chapter 26, Paul is accused of many charges in the Jewish temple. And he's going trial before the Roman government, and he's standing trial before somebody called King Agrippa. And when he does that, the apostle Paul is before King Agrippa, and he does not say, Agrippa, receive Jesus in your heart, and then you will see about these things that you know nothing about. He says, Agrippa, 
These things I'm telling you about were not done in a corner. Listen to the record, listen to the witnesses. And we're told in scripture, Agrippa got up and he left the room and we're told he did not speak again until he gets to another room. And you can almost, if you're picturing it in your mind, it's almost like Paul's words left him pondering in silence so that he went off. What was he doing going to another room? He was thinking, he was pondering all that Paul had shared with him. See, Paul, Peter, they could say, they could claim the tomb was empty because there was public record and there was scads of evidence. The point is this, people were cut to the heart because they were made to think about it. Religion is not just what makes us feel good with no brain power. It's one of the things I love about Methodism. We embrace the heart and the mind. You feel it and you think about it. It's both. And when we are cut to the heart, we realize, oh my word, this might objectively be true. There are reasons for this to be true. And when you are cut to the heart, we experience Romans chapter 12, verse 2. We are transformed by the renewing of our mind. There is evidence that this is true, and we experience that reality. It's a thinking message. For once in your life, says Peter, think, think. If you really objectively think about it, you'll be cut to the heart, penetrated. Let the Holy Spirit cross-examine you and point out the truth. But when we are also cut to the heart, it's not just in thinking and realizing the truth, it's also when we realize the death of Christ and that becomes real to us. Look what it says in Acts chapter two, verse 36. It says, therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Hear that statement, you crucified him. When we realize that, that it was us who killed him, that it was me, that I'm responsible, it cuts us to the heart. It's the reason why every year at the Good Friday service, we do the thing I hate the most throughout the entire year, at least as a pastor. I ask you all, yell, crucify. And we do it repeatedly until we are screaming it as loudly as we can because that's what the people killing Jesus did and we are also the ones who kill Jesus. It is our sins that nail Jesus to the cross. We are the ones who put them there. And until we realize that this reality, that it's our sin that causes the death of Jesus, we will not be cut to the heart. For 2,000 years, this has been the case that whenever the Holy Spirit cuts us to the heart and his power is released in our life, then we realize this reality to be true, that we have crucified the living Lord. It was my sin that nailed him to the cross. I'm always struck every year with that Good Friday service. Some people will come to me and they say, why are we doing that service again? We already know what happens. Can't we do something different? And frankly, when I hear that, in my mind, what I'm thinking is, we're not getting it. The death of Jesus has not cut us to the heart. There's nothing else new to do on Good Friday. You gotta go through the death. And then it's interesting because others will come up to me. They've gone through the exact same service, and instead of coming up to me and saying, what are we doing different next year? They will come up to me with tears in their eyes. And they will say, me, me, how could I do that? 
how could I put him on that cross for my sin? How could I kill him? And you know what's happening in those moments? They're being cut to the heart. They're getting it. Peter knew deeply what it meant to be cut to the heart for denying Jesus. In fact, Luke tells us, and it's only Luke, gives us this one key verse that after Peter had denied Jesus for the third time, after the rooster crowed, we're told that the Lord turned and looked at Peter and their eyes locked and Peter went and wept bitterly. You know why? Because Jesus' face at that point would have been beaten and purple and swollen and mucus on him and all kinds of stuff. And Peter saw in those moments that Jesus was dying because of him. He saw that it was his sin costing Jesus his life, and it cut him to the heart. And Peter says, you too, I too have crucified him. Think about that for just a moment. How does that cut us? This spiritual cutting is the difference between being religious and being a Christian. I love the way Keller says this. He says, before we're cut to the heart, we understand that our sins have broken God's rules. After we're cut to the heart, we understand our sins have broken God's heart. That's a distinct difference. Beforehand, we break God's rules. Afterwards, we realize we've broken God's heart. When we see what God has done for us, it revolutionizes how we view Jesus, and this realization changes everything. We may have been weighed down by our sins prior to spiritual cutting. We might have even been crushed under the weight, but this is a different kind of conviction. The first weight says, I have broken that rule. The second realization says, I've broken him. The first burden says, do the right thing or he'll get me. The second kind of burden says, look what he's done for me, and I didn't even know it. And it melts our hearts. Many years ago, Keller had an interesting experience. He describes of going to the country of Wales. And in Wales, he went to a little town called Bed Gellert, and it means the grave of Gellert. There was a legend that circulated in the town of Gellert that many, many centuries ago, the Lord of Wales had been in his own house and in the evening time went to the bedroom of his infant child. When he got to the bedroom, his infant child was not there. There was blood all over the sheets. He turned around where Gellert, the dog, was lying there with blood all over him and blood on the floor. Then Lewin pulled out his sword and he stabbed and killed Gellert, his dog. of what he had done. Then he walked into the next room, and there was his son, perfectly unscathed, but a large wolf lying dead on the floor. And suddenly, Llewellyn realized the blood on the pillow was Gellert's blood, and the blood on the floor was his dog Gellert's blood. And suddenly, Llewellyn realized he had slain the Savior of his family. He had not known what he was doing. 
Now, I read that, and even for me, all these centuries later, I begin to get a little worked up and choked up and sad. Now, that's for a dog. And that's significant. But what we as Christians realize is we say to the Lord of the universe, to Jesus, I didn't know what you had done. I've been treating you as the enemy because I didn't realize what you had done. And as a Christian, when we realize this, we say, I had no idea. Now, how can I give and live my life where I no longer treat you, God, as the enemy? I can't continue this way, so Lord, what must I do? How do I respond to you? That's what it means to be cut to the heart. And what are the results then of being cut to the heart? What happens? How does this power come into our lives? If I thought the crucified Jesus would make me feel terrible, not power, then we're not really thinking. And so I just I want to ask, I know we're almost done, but I just need your help on this for just a few moments. I need you to think with me on this really carefully, all right? Stick with me for just a moment and think and realize this. We get our freedom in forgiveness. We get our freedom in forgiveness. And here's how. When we are forgiven, we get freedom in our conscience because the very thing that convicts us is the very thing that comforts us. I want us to think about that again. The very thing that convicts us is the very thing that comforts us. And again, we have to think. And if we think about this, we'll be cut to the heart. Look how this works. Jesus died on the cross. What does that tell us? It says sin is a really big deal because he died on the cross for it. But it also says his love for me must be terribly strong. To realize Jesus died on the cross means not only that sin is a big, serious deal, but also that Jesus loves me so much that he would go to great lengths to save me. We can't only look at the cross and let it tell us about our sin. When we say Jesus died because of me, it also means he died because of me. The conviction becomes the comfort. The conviction is the comfort. Why is Jesus up there on the cross dying? Because you mean the world to him. And there is nothing, absolutely nothing, we can possibly do that Jesus won't go so far as try to reach and bring us back, even going to the point of dying for us. Folks, that is a sense of comfort. Not only do we break the law in in our hearts, we realize he died for us and we realize we are infinitely loved. And when we realize that kind of infinite love, there is a power that begins to flood our lives and lets us live into It's the comfort that convicts. Some of us have had sins that we've struggled with our whole life, and we've tried so hard for many years to get rid of it, and we've never been able to get rid of those sins because we try and we try and we try in our own strength. Some of us have habits of anger or addiction or not loving people, and we swear to ourselves we're going to do better, and we do the best that we can, but the problem is we're only bending our own will away from the sin, and eventually the sin brings it back. But what if we look to the cross and we see Jesus taking the weight of the world on him and literally dying for us and doing anything to create a way for us. When we realize that and embrace that, there is a melting that happens in our hearts that we're not just bending our will, we're being melted and brought into new creations in Christ. And that will set us free. 
When we get towards the end of this passage then, look what happens. What is the result of these melted, cut-to-the-heart hearts? Absolute lordship. Acts 2.37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart, and then they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, now, what shall we do? I love this. They're not saying, how do I now in a few steps become a Christian? They're saying, what do I do? All the conditions are taken off. Absolute lordship. Here we are, God. What do you want us to do? Where do you want us to go? How do you want to send us? There is complete, absolute obedience in every way. It's not a partial. It's not if you do this, then I'll do that. There is no in-between. He is either master of all in our lives or he is not. When we are cut to the heart, we take the conditions off. And then what happens? Acts 2.41. And the Lord added to their number you and I, this very moment, can become a Christian. They didn't go through this long process. There's just a decisive change when their hearts are cut out of love. So as we end our time this morning, what would it take to be cut to the heart in Christ right here, right now? What would it take for God to add daily to our numbers? As we mentioned a few weeks ago, I believe that God has and is equipping First Church with the capacity not just to add here, but to multiply here in all kinds of ways through the launching and connection of faith communities and fresh expressions of faith. We have the capacity through Christ to be a multiplying people. But for that to happen, we must be cut to the heart. What will it take for that to happen? Well, what we know is it'll take something beyond my ordinary words. It will take something beyond you. It will take a release of the Holy Spirit, a supernatural surge, where then we respond and say, Lord, what would you have of us? Where do you want us to go? What do you want us to do? And our hearts are melted. As we end our time this morning, I want to ask you before we move on, I just I want to ask you to pray with me. And as I pray, I'll lift up just a couple of categories, but in our own hearts, could we pray them? Could we plead them to the Lord Almighty this day that we together might be cut to the heart? Let us pray. Lord, this day, melt our hearts in you in your life, and in your death. Lord, pour out your Holy Spirit upon us today and in the days to come to realize your truth and that you died for us. Lord, multiply us in you. And Lord, cut us to the heart that you might add daily to 
to your numbers among us. Amen.